E-F-R. BostonFreeRadio.com It is the top of the hour. My name is Guillermo Hamlin. I'm the host of the Guaucast here on Boss Free Radio. Today we are joined by a fellow at the Hoover Institution and long-running host of Econ Talk, Russ Roberts. Uh, Russ, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. So uh, what I'd like to touch on today is your monologue. Uh, for my listeners, I'll be including the link wherever you get yours, whether it be uh, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Patreon. But Russ Roberts, our guest today, gave a phenomenal monologue on the state of discourse in our time. And one thing I took from it is a few questions such as, are we in the age of uncritical cognitive overload with our media, education, etc.? Are we in the midst of a customized online feeding frenzy? And are there any market solutions to disseminate affordable media literacy? And ultimately, how long did it take our guests to realize that people may not care about what's true and many more? Russ, if you'd like to get started, what made you decide to give this monologue? I, I, I know many uh, podcasters don't really feel like talking for, uh, for an hour about stuff that they care about. They would much rather have somebody else as a guest and then start talking an hour or so about what they care about. What made you decide to do in a monologue form? I wrote a uh, long essay on, you know, what, what some people call the outrage epidemic or, uh, the, as you mentioned, the loss of civility in public discourse. And I wrote that essay, and then I realized it would make a good, uh, my listeners at EconTalk would be interested in it. And I've done, I think, 640 episodes at EconTalk, and about and maybe five of them are just me talking rather than with a guest. But this one, I just decided... I would read the essay and expound on it, add stuff to it, a um, few digressions, because uh, I think it's such an important issue, and I'm feeling I felt so passionate about it. Uh, my, you know, my my basic point is that it's really easy to complain about the level of discourse, uh, but the level of discourse in the United States has always been contentious, politically contentious, between the left and the right, between liberals and conservatives, between Republicans and Democrats. But I thought something had changed. It felt like something had changed over the last five years. And I, I went to think about what it is that's different. And one of the things that's different, I think, is the disruption of the news business and the information business through the Internet and through social media, which allows us to customize what we read and what we learn about. And the news media likes to pretend it's interested in the truth. But if you're interested in the truth and you don't have any eyeballs or any viewers or any subscribers, you can't keep spreading your mission. So I start with the premise that media outlets try to get people to pay attention to them. And there's a lot of more competition between them than there was, say, 10, 20, or 30 years ago. When, when, say, 30 years ago, there was only a handful of 
three mainly networks who provided the news at night and your local newspaper. And that was about it. Now there's a handful of national newspapers. There's cable. And there's your Twitter and your Facebook and Instagram feeds, et cetera, that let you read what you want. Nobody is stuck, um, especially younger people, in, in just being fed what the network news is at night. In fact, network news uh, ratings are way down. And as people get older and die, they're going to maybe disappear, those network news options. So the world's very different. And one of the ways it's different is I get to customize what I watch and what I read. And then you could ask, well, what will people want to read and want to watch? And you might want to believe that they want to read and watch what's true. Uh, and so they can find out what the right thing is. Uh, we like to tell ourselves that. I think most of us think we do that. But I think, in fact, most of us read and watch what makes us feel comfortable and what confirms our views. Uh, I make the analogy of the news market to the, to, to the shoe market. When I'm shopping for shoes at Zappo, I look for fit, comfort, and style. I want the shoes to fit me. I want them to be comfortable, and I want them to be stylish, meaning I want people to think that I'm wearing the right kind of shoes, good-looking shoes, hip shoes, cool shoes. And I think that's where we get our news. I look for news that fits me, that makes me feel comfortable, and that makes me look good among my friends. And so when you're in that world, um, everything gets turned a little bit upside down compared to the past. And to compete in that world, you've got to be louder, and angry if you want to attract viewers and listeners. And I think that's what's happened. And there's a lot more um, dishonesty. There's a lot less integrity in the news on both sides of the political spectrum. So I think that's the world we're living in. And I think it's a very scary world. It's going to be tough for democracy. We're going to have to figure out some ways, ways to deal with it. I agree. And one thing that I, you know, the, I, I asked this previous, but... Given the form, given the when you were composing your um, your monologue, and you you touch upon the our current digital age, you know you're right. There was a period in which we had a consolidation just because of its competition. There weren't many television stations, and this was even before cable. When exponentially, we've had different options, and this is even before the advent of online media. Are we in the age? of uncritical cognitive overload when it comes to the way that we get our media? Well, critical thinking is always, you know, a good idea on paper. I think most people would say that's important and when we're trying to evaluate, say, some, a candidate's economic policy or a candidate's views on migration, immigration or a candidate's views on foreign policy, we should do it critically. We should look at different issues, different facts, different get different opinions, uh, weigh the different pros and cons of these policies. But I don't think that's what we do. Um, that's maybe a few of us do it, but most of us don't do that. Most of us have an identity, a political identity, a party identity, an ideological identity. And we cherry pick the stuff that confirms that identity and we ignore the stuff that doesn't. If we don't like a study that comes out that challenges our worldview, we explain why it's not to ourselves or to our friends. Well, it's not a good study. When a study comes along that agrees with what we already believe, we wave it around. We explain, we tell people, yeah, see, this just shows I was right all along. Now, what's different is that in 1950, you know, there wasn't any cognitive overload, but we're still doing the same thing. It's just we didn't have much to choose from. Every night, the three major news networks pretty much told the same story, 
Uh, it had some political bias, certainly. It wasn't purely objective. But they were interested in getting lots of customers, of course, and they also didn't have to compete so much. There were only three of them. So they had a little room for being creative, but mainly they were going to do what the other ones did and not rock the boat. Now, we have this wildly varied array of voices to choose from. And so we choose the ones that make us feel good. I mean, if you're listening to this right now, you think about your own Twitter feed or your Facebook uh, friends or the cable news that you watch or the website that you visit. Do you make an effort to get the other side? Most people only make that effort so they can make fun of it. They can mock it, feel superior to it, feel disdain for it. So we've come to a world, I think, right now, it's a little bit dangerous. Uh, first of all, I think we don't, we're not well informed. We think we are because we've looked at lots of things, but we've only looked at certain kinds of things. The second part that's dangerous is that the sites that we go to and the places we visit often thrive by mocking and vilifying the people on the other side of the political spectrum. Well, if that's all you watch all day, you're going to start to think they're pretty awful. So people on the left think people on the right are dangerous. People on the right think people on the left are dangerous. They're not just people I don't agree with. They're not just people who look at the world differently. They're not just people who have policies I don't think are as good as mine. They're people who are threats to the future of the country. And when you get into that mode, you risk, you risk violence. You risk uh, civil war. And uh, we're... We're not close to that right now, but we're closer than we were 10 years ago. And I think that what your monologue touches on is the way that it's okay to acknowledge our arrogance. It is proper to then build our discipline towards humility, but also to be selectively passionate. Is that a correct uh, characterization of... Uh, you, you break down advice in your monologue one of them you said you know i mean in summation i'm trying to be very clear where we're innately arrogant as humans yeah we're, we're, we're self-confident we're self-centered and um being humble doesn't come naturally to us so one of the things i do encourage in that essay is for people to be in the monologue is for people to be humble mm-hmm. be willing to admit that you don't know but i'm realistic and 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 that most people don't want to be humble <laughs> It's much more fun to say that you do know. So I'm not, I, that's, I think that's good personal advice to be humble. I think it's good personal advice to say, uh, I don't know, and to try to learn how to enjoy saying that, which is not easy. But most people struggle with that, and I think, uh, including myself, so I think we should be realistic that that isn't going to save everything. I think the bigger challenge is to try to uh, open your mind to the possibility that you might not be right all the time, and to do that, you need to be exposed to other ideas than just the ones that make you feel good. And most people don't want to do that either. Uh, but I think if, if you, I think it's a patriotic act. If you want the United States to be a successful place for yourself, for your children and grandchildren, we need. I want I want to live in a world. I want my descendants to live in a world that's peaceful and respectful of other people. And uh, we're moving away from that world. So you, as an individual, have the potential to take a step in the right direction by not vilifying people who you disagree with and by being open-minded. And to do that, the easiest way to do that is to find people to follow on social media or find sources to read 
that are not your side, but not crazy either. Because if you follow just if you just follow crazy people on the other side, it'll just confirm your view that they're awful and don't know what they're talking about. You've got to look for thoughtful people on the other side. And that's hard to do, partly because you, you don't think there are any, possibly. A lot of people just assume that everyone on the other side is either loony or zombies or, or evil or dangerous. So you want to look for people slightly maybe near you, but not as extreme, ideally on the other side, uh, who, who might get you to be more thoughtful about your policy positions. I also think that it's just instructive because counter-arguing allows one to re-examine premises. I feel that in general, it's just, I agree with, with your your initial uh, discussion. I mean, you, I, I'm going to go down the entire list of what our takeaways from your uh, monologue uh, very quickly. I stated earlier that we're arrogant, best be humble, but be selectively passionate. You know, don't feel the need to do something just because, but if you're going to do something, do good and make sure it aligns with your principles. Follow people on Twitter or on Facebook or on any social media platform where people are different than you. You're more likely to be triggered, obviously, as you stated in your monologue. So the way, you know, you say it's best to curate your social media less, but it's also good to know your pain points. And it's a thought that is true because I know that me personally, it's not really popular where I live in Somerville, Massachusetts, where you're not really, in, you know, the act of engaging in good faith for a discussion such as this usually yields the, the rebut, how does one listen to, how does one associate, how does one engage in a conversation where there is no real merit to their conversation. It's just a trail leading you to conclude that some people are innately inferior to people and that in many ways there's rhetoric masking that. And in some ways it's a, it's a sunk effort because there's no real merit to the conversation. So there's no real compelling need to follow them. But I do agree that there are many ways that we can engage and learn from the other. And that goes into your next point, which is to hold your anger for a day. Answer calmly when you're dealt with confrontation, but don't play the game of that, you know, submission that they want. I like the way that you touch on the need for getting off the grid, not legitimately off the grid, but get off social media, get off social networks and really flourish in your human relationships, flourish in those in your life. And best to be aware that maybe we're all a little into outrage and it's something that maybe could really guide us internally in some sort of contemplative fashion or in a constructive way which lets us act and proceed with our values to do good especially when it aligns with your principles and i find i found that part of the monologue to be really winning i like that you touch upon a great many number of things one of them is the idea that journalists are it's a lot more transparent in terms of how they conduct themselves, which my question asks, back then, was it easier to take a journalist at their word because we didn't have a public profile to these journalists? And Because unlike now, I can go to any journalist's Twitter feed and get a really solid understanding of the differentiation that they themselves align with, but also how they compose their thought processes, especially when it comes to the issues of the day. Well, in the old days, uh, there was no social media, right? So journalists, you read the stories, and they kept a very 
a strong sense of objectivity. Now, you might not have found every story they write to be objective, but that was a big part of their code, a big part of their credo, their ethic as a journalist was to be objective and not biased. And now they, because of this competitive process in the media and the return to having more followers and the return to more eyeballs and clicks, you see journalists taking out ideological ground or saying things that are critical or supportive of the president that they would never have done 25 years ago, not publicly. And so, yeah, we know a lot, yes, we know a lot more about journalists than we knew before. And the game they're playing, the, there's, I would say, that, again, their code or the implicit rules that they're holding to are very different than what they used to be. Um, and the way that's good, at least you know what they, where they stand, uh, just the, the problem now is that people then tend to follow the people who are like them, and that encourages journalists to be uh, angrier and louder and less thoughtful, because if you're thoughtful and you sometimes say that, uh, say, President Trump does something good, or the other side, if you sometimes say that President Trump makes mistakes, and all of a sudden you're on the wrong side of your followers, potentially, and you'll lose a bunch of them. So that's a big problem. Yeah, I think the big problem, by the way, of, you know, of outrage and anger is that it feels good. Most of us struggle with that, I hope. I mean, I think a lot of times it feels good to yell back at someone and defend yourself. And I know the wrong defending yourself, but I think to do it calmly and to not ratchet up the volume and not ratchet up the hatefulness is extremely important. And uh, without that, you, know, you can see this on Twitter, obviously. Uh, I'm on Twitter more than Facebook, but you see it on Twitter, you see it on talk shows, where people are just essentially the equivalent of a screaming match. And uh, it's just a cathartic way for people to get their anger out. And I don't, you know, it's just not very helpful for a democracy. You know, my view is, is that anger is never helpful unless you're <clears throat> physically at risk or in danger. Passion. There's going to be passionate about things, things you're interested in, causes you care about. But anger is uh, essentially conceding that you're losing up, you're losing control. And uh, although that sometimes, again, can be uh, rewarding personally, not a very good thing for um, conversation. So I, I would discourage that. Back then, it wasn't, people didn't really reveal their political affiliations. You had the right to associate, but for the most part, it was improper to have conversations of any sort of political stripe in the workplace, even at like a local Rotary Club. There, there was always the need where it was that one's political inclinations were their right, and therefore is kind of private, but we're not in that world anymore. I think that's another thing that may inform the way we look at journalists now is that back then, you unless they were on television or unless they publicly were running under a party banner for the purposes of public life, I don't really think that constituents themselves really needed to convey their affiliation. And I think that informs a great deal of how right now when we can read a journal. Well, certainly. Yeah, when we when we read a, a, a paper back then, it, it was meant to have that that veil that made it politically neutral. But now we have papers for the purpose where their mission is to reinforce a political ideology. And, and, and now I see that in our conversations now. For instance, ad Hitlerum is on the rise, where it, it, it kind of deplatforms the openness and kindness that I feel could effectually change minds, unless they themselves are actually proposing an ethno, st an ethno state that is leaning towards, you know, 
white supremacy, which I think is laughable and should have has no real merit to stand on other than the need to do so and the subjugation of others in the process. Yeah, well, that's, that's an example of the kind of extreme stuff people are saying say online on both sides of the spectrum. But you know, I think the main point you made, I think it's important, is the idea that journalists used to be, at least they at least pretended to be objective. Now they don't try so hard. And um, I don't know if that's better for work or worse, but um, they stake out positions that are uh, much less objective, much more uh, biased. And they don't seem bothered by it anymore because they need, they they want to get the, the followers or the friends on their social network. So there's a natural incentive to be louder and angrier, and that's just a shame. Well, where are we on the state of objectivity? I remember when I was in college, I can say something is objective, and then when someone followed up and said, "Well, how do you define objectivity?" and I would say, "That which is really the case." But something that concise doesn't really grasp the fact that maybe objectivity isn't that instructive and imparts falsehoods can compel the aspirational side of human of the human mind. Uh, and I think that maybe that's what we're dealing with here is that, as you stated, the truth, maybe people don't want to know the truth. Maybe the truth confines them to where they are. And I think that it is very natural for us as, as people. I know when I was growing up, I was never told that where I was was where I was going to be. And I think that in some way, maybe there is some latitude in terms of what how we operate with truth. But regarding the external governance that follows just the world at large, David Hume made it very clear that what is what is more likely that the rules of the universe were suspended or that you're wrong. And I think that now more than ever, we, we have this need to elevate the aspirational, even at the expense of the truth. For instance, again, he's, uh, he's getting a lot of free press because of his office, but even prior, you know, our president in many ways is a needy nationalist. And he makes it very clear when you ask him that he's a nationalist. However, given the skepticism of multiculturalism embedded in nationalism, there's no doubt that when he ran, he pandered to white nationalists, given his open hostility to Latin, Ameri Latin American immigrants qualifying for what could be the enfranchisement and the promise of U.S. citizenship. And I believe that the, the road he paid was with a series of falsehoods. But I would love to hear your thoughts on how we can deal with this market failure, especially when it comes to falsehoods in the public square, as well as broadcasting falsehoods where we configures our existence. Well, I think you want to make a distinction between truths, falsehoods, on the one hand, and opinions and preferences and tastes on the other. So uh, I don't think there's ever any excuse for not being truthful. As political consumers, I'm not sure how much we care about the truth. We like our side whether it's our political party or our ideology. I think there is objective truth on certain questions. I think there's certain questions that are, we could bring objective truth to discussion, and a lot of times those truths get lost because people don't care. They'll accept a story that's not true because it's good for their worldview. You know, they'll believe that a certain some things, something about the crime rate or something about immigration or something about how the economy's doing. And those things might not be true. Someone may have said them in the media or on, a, you know, in some kind of social media, and they get they get repeated, and accepted because they make people feel good. Um, politicians, like the President of the United States, when he was campaigning, or now, 
we lie all the time. That, there's nothing new there. That Trump's not distinctive about that. I think what I think is more interesting is how he's been covered and how people on the left and on the right, politically, journalists on either side of the spectrum, who are purporting to be objective reporters of the truth, they don't know how to handle him because he's, for a lot of different reasons, but uh, the way he is being treated is very different than presidents in the past have been treated. Now, all in, in the past, there was a lot of pro and con treatment of the presidents. Not, so I think objectivity exists. I think it's just very hard to do. So I don't think journalists are particularly good at being objective in the past, but they've just gotten a lot worse. They don't try anymore. They don't care. In fact, they care the opposite. They want to be more partisan than they were in the past because it's good for business. And what, we, what should we do about that? Well, it's up to us, partly, not just politically, not just which, what policy should we change, but you know, the culture of the internet is determined by our individual actions. So if we didn't follow people who, we stopped following people who yelled and screamed and, and cursed out our people on the other side, that'd be a good thing, I think, because I think that's destructive. I think it'd be great if we made the decision to not follow those folks. If we uh, spent less time on social media and got less angry, I think all those things are good. They're not the natural thing, though. The natural thing is to indulge those preferences and, and to revel in disdain for our opponents. So, you know, that's the challenge. The challenge is how do we do, get people to do something that's not necessarily in their own special, own personal interest. They want to do something else. And I think that's, uh, you know, there's a temptation to, to use legislation or to um, force people to to do this out of the other, and I think that's really a bad way to go. I think the First Amendment's a crucial part of the United States, uh, getting rid of it and using the government to control what we hear because it's dangerous is really a, even much more dangerous. So I think that we're in a very unsettled time where people try to figure out how to live and how to behave in this world that we're in. So I think we're figuring it out. I think there's going to be certain things that are going to be considered acceptable and certain things that are going to be considered unacceptable that aren't the case right now. I think those things will change. So it'll be really interesting. Yeah, and I agree that I feel that the number one thing that we're underutilizing is the way that removing yourself from social media, in fact, empowers you. It empowers you because yep. you're rested. It empowers you because you're no longer... Your stimulus, your stimuli isn't tied to something red. At least once paired with your hold your anger for a day, it, it really empowers the viewer, the listener, the reader who's engaging online to really have an additional. I don't. I wouldn't call it tolerance. Just critical, like critical thinking, where they can sit on an idea. And see the way that it weaves and turns. And you can have your ideological constitution in place and still indulge the premise, the way that arguments are concluded. And ultimately, I think that the benefit from that comes from the way, it comes by way of creativity, ability to counter argue, um, knowledge. That's ultimately like the most empowering thing is you you gain the knowledge of a counter view and that that in return clarifies your ideological constitution and you can do so without needing to 
demonize or otherize your opponent. And ultimately, that touches on something that I would like to uh, delve a little bit on, which is I, I, I believe that there's a market solution. I don't think it's going to resolve every issue. But, you know, one of the things you mentioned in your monologue was media literacy and just basic media literacy. I, I feel that I don't know how common this is in other parts of the United States. I know that's a largely it's largely a big thing. I, I, I go I attend conferences across the United States and we go to different states. So I know that they're in place in different states, but they're not probably as 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 a as many, as frequent as they are in the state of Massachusetts, but I, I believe that the market solution for affordable media literacy, and again, I'm biased, I'm making it very clear that my affiliation with the Somerville Media Center, I serve on their board, I currently work at MATV Malden's Media Center, which is a community media center, which used to be public access television stations that were empowered through cable franchise fees to local municipalities for using their infrastructure that they disperse these fees for the purpose of PEG access, public education, governmental. I feel that with inc with increasing and broadening the mission of a media center, you could affordably address uh, basic media literacy, and you could do so in conjunction with the schools, local businesses, because it is a private sector solution that isn't predicated on any sort of legislation but more so it provides the the necessary equipment to really amplify a voice. Now, ultimately, yeah, I mean, it, we would, there would need to be some moderation in terms of who's uh, taking over and utilizing most of the equipment, but I think that that's a market solution that is done through subscribers, that has a public benefit, is not in any way supposed to you know, carry water for the government, but in return should be for the people. However, I'd like to hear what your idea of a market solution would be for affordable media literacy, because ultimately I think that's what we'll be needing moving forward. I don't think we need like a top-down approach. I think we need a coalition from the bottom up and to sustain that. Well, I have something different. I think maybe when I think of media literacy than you do, I, I'm just thinking about the idea that you shouldn't believe everything you read. And I think most people Agreed. tend to believe everything they read if it already makes them feel good. And if it doesn't, they just don't believe it. And that's that's not a literate person. That's just a blind person pretending to be literate. And I think by teaching people how to think about statistics, the statistics can be manipulated to fool you. And that's a form of literacy that's important. But these kind of solutions are challenging because they require an incentive on the part of the individual to care about the truth. And I, you know, one of my points, I think it's unfortunately correct, is that a lot of people don't really care about the truth. But you, know, you care a lot about the truth when you're buying a car. If you have th three kids and you buy a car without a back seat, and you believe that the car has a back seat, and you, there's an ad for the car that shows the back seat, but when you get the car, it doesn't have one, then you're going to realize you made a mistake. If you vote for a candidate who's bad for the country, you don't really realize that. It's hard to know. Uh, if it's a senator, there's a bunch of them. So you don't really know how important or good your senator actually is. It's almost impossible to know in any reliable way. You have to make a, a guess, an estimate. You have to read. You have to think. And most of us don't have time to do that. We're only one vote. We don't have an incentive to be well-informed. It's not surprising that we're not well-informed. It doesn't pay off. Only in your form of self-respect. So I don't think that's a very likely... 
I mean, it doesn't hurt. We should do more of that. It's all good. But when I think of a private solution, I think more of you know, forms of social media that that might compete with Twitter or Facebook that might be a little less um, antagonistic, a little less uh, uh, mob-like. I think that's the, the challenge, is to find ways for us to interact online that are a little more peaceful. I agree that the best way to com the best way to really address an issue is to compete against that issue. You yep. know, a uh, a public access darling who recently was able to then self monetize. You know, I'm not a fan of this gentleman in the least, but Alex Jones was knocked off Spotify, iTunes, Facebook, and, and a whole bunch of other hosts and providers. Now, there is something immediately gratifying about the idea of these private entities deciding, like in the movie Mean Girls, that they can't sit with them. But ultimately, for there is something, you know, it's a bit nuanced because as someone who myself, uh, I'm an immigrant of Latin America, I was born in Paraguay, moved to the United States when I was really young, and basically my version of immigration and the way that I benefited from immigration in this country and enfranchised myself as a, as a green card holder, naturalized as a citizen, and seeing the full promise of that citizenship, it was informed a great deal by the way immigration was established in the 90s and in the early 2000s. It makes it very easy for me to really look at his downfall in some glee. Now, that's immediately gratifying, but ultimately, I, I like to say that the best thing is to come up with something better because it's lasting. Wouldn't you agree? Because I feel... Oh, yeah. Well, that's not what bothers me about it. That's not what bothers me about it. Uh, mm -hmm. I think the bigger issue is, you know, do you want... Um, you know, as, as somebody believes in free markets and in competition, you want uh, companies to compete and you want them to serve their customers. And um, they made a private decision on their own to ban Alex Jones. So in one dimension, that's fine. That's their choice. They're free to do that. Uh, but it, what makes me uneasy is this idea that, that perhaps the government will tell them who they have to ban or uh, they will be swayed by the mob, which is partly what this is inevitably going to be about. And that's why we don't really have a great system right now. We need, we need social networks that compete, some of which might be unfettered anybody can say anything they want full of anonymity uh, a place where you can shriek and yell and, and it'd be great if there were some equally attractive sites to visit where everybody used their real name and there were there was highly moderated and let people choose where they want to spend their time and right now we don't really have that many choices it's weird we have a number of social media outlets but they're all somewhat similar they're different in how they're you know, the user interface and some of the cultural norms that are there. But uh, I'm looking for somebody to start something that's a little more um, innovative in how, say, people interact or innovative in how much anonymity there is or innovative in uh, what rules are for moderation. Uh, so, you know, I have, I have a podcast. You can comment at our podcast. If you yell and insult the host or the guest, uh, your comment will not be posted. We don't let people make ad hominem attacks on 
other posters on guests. It's just, we don't allow it. Now, that's a restriction, but I think it's the right kind of restriction. And I'm not the, if I'm the only podcast we could debate whether that was fair, but thankfully I'm not the only podcast. I think the real issue is, is how few choices we have right now. So we need more choices. Otherwise, people will start to say that Google, Amazon, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, are public utilities, and they should be subject to regulation. And once they're subject to regulation, they're subject to influence in ways that are a little bit scary from the power of the state. So I think that's the question of, it's going to be interesting to watch in the next two to three years of how this plays out. I think Alex Jones is the first uh, adventure in this. Yeah, I I think that because he is such a polarizing figure, um, because he is who he is, and it's very clear that he enjoys inciting that which is close to hate speech, inciting that which is really close to inciting violence. And for many, great many number of people who themselves identify as vulnerable populations or people of color, they might as given their lived experience, their keenly felt uh, perception that the, his show is full of hate speech and inciting violence. But I also am kind of cautious because, as you stated, there is this sort of battering ram of government by way of private corporations here. And in some ways, they themselves are not necessarily clear about how they'd go about doing this, which for me, I would prefer they be upfront because that way, the way they enforce these terms and conditions, it would allow me as a consumer to then know who to patronize, which, yeah. and for the brands to really know how they would be investing their advertising dollars. So in many ways, I, I can see how Mr. Jones is very problematic, how he himself is a, an acquired taste and that in return that could bring about some liabilities and concern that these corporations want no exposure to because they're not yeah. there to talk about the sex lives of frogs. They're not there to talk about conspiracy theories. They want a return on investment and they want to be able to continue that growth and to sustain what they have going. One thing that I also want to delve into now since we're nearing about the end of the hour and you've been amazing uh, coming on the show here. How does one create cultural norms? I know that during the monologue, you, that was something that Maeve says, like, hmm, maybe that's something we should do, but I have no idea how to create cultural norms. And one thing that I really want to know is, why does the right seem to want to weaponize this and against immigrants at times? You know, oh, they're not like us. You know, in-out politics, otherism, and other things that really distinguish us and them, which is, for any anthropologist, they'll tell you it's as, it's as old as time. But in terms of the now, as a tactic, how are culture wars and in return cultural norms now weaponized and how can we, whether it be the consumer, the listener, the academic, how do we go about creating cultural norms together? Well, well nobody, nobody's in charge, by definition almost, nobody's in charge of them. So you can't literally control them. You can't really create them. You know, we have lots of different cultural norms about immigration in the United States. We have a long history of the United States as being friendly to immigrants. There's a lot of cultural norms towards diversity that are positive toward diversity. There's a lot of cultural norms that are about uh, are coming together out of the many we have one. So th those are all those are all great things. The different cultural norms are not so they're anti-immigrant. 
Um, and so they're all competing with each other out in the in the world we live in. There's no uh, nobody writes them down, nobody compiles them, nobody enforces them. They're enforced by us individually taking action. So you know, I, if you want to change the cultural norms that we have, but let's take one that's not so controversial. It's not it's not cool to smoke cigarette in the United States anymore. It used to be very cool. Now it's not cool anymore. How did that change? Well, changed through you know years of effort on the part of doctors and thinkers and and public intellectuals trying to de-romanticize smoking, and it was successful. It worked, but you don't know how to do that every time. It isn't always true. There are a lot of cultural wars that don't end up in victory on one side or the other. So my view on this is that each of us individually should take the steps that we are in control of. So it's up to you how you respond to somebody who insults you on the internet. It's up to you how to respond to something that you think is hateful. You can yell back. You can be polite. It's up to you to be to ignore certain things or respond to them. So, you know, when I say hold your anger for a day, I'm suggesting it's a really good idea to not use your heart in the middle of an argument, but instead use your head the next day when your heart's cooled down. And so I think that kind of step that we can all take to not insult people who aren't like us, to not insult people who disagree with, to instead say politely, I disagree, to explain why, and not just screaming back, you're a jerk, or whatever you feel like saying in your heart, but you want to leave it alone. Be, be, be more respectful. And I think that's really hard. All of the cultural norms, not all, but many of the cultural norms we're in the middle of right now push us in the other direction. And each of us as individuals can make a step in the other direction toward humility, toward respect, toward peacefulness. And that's our choice. We control, none of us control the social norms. All of us control, to some extent, our own personal choices. And that's what we control. It's what we should work on. And if all of us do that, we'll change the norm. Not in a controlled way, but in an emergent way through our own actions. And so I encourage all of us to be more civil and respectful. Not evil, but to imagine that people who disagree with you are not evil. Many of them aren't. The ones that are, yes, you should ignore them. Disdain, have disdain for them. But many of them are just people trying to make the world a better place just in a way that's different from your way. And you should be open to the possibility that they're right and you're wrong. And if you look at the world that way, you will be uh, calmer. <laughs> and he'll improve the quality of discourse and conversation in our country. And finally, you know, we are a cyberspace and hip hop podcast. You have a distinction of having helped compose as well as assist in rap verses to defend or even offend by the way of Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek in a supposed rap battle from Keynes. What was that like? In, you know, employing your skill set. In, in that was a blast. Yeah, I can imagine, and also it's it's something that I felt like needs to be touched on. We're a cyberspace and hip hop podcast. This was an online video that went viral that goes into the dif the differences between these two economists. If you could very so brief, I, if very briefly for our, for our uh, listeners, can you give us an overview of what exactly that project was like, and ultimately sure. what, what it was about? Because I imagine that. As soon as we're done talking about it, people are going to be interested in viewing it. Sure, thanks. So uh, this was a project I did with a filmmaker, John Popola, 
Uh, both of us were big fans of F.A. Hayek, the Austrian economist, and who was often an antagonist, an intellectual, uh, intellectual debates with John Maynard Keynes in the first part of the 20th century. So uh, we thought most people aren't that interested in this intellectual debate, but if we put it in a rap battle format and sell the level, we get more people to watch it. So that's what we tried to do. We made two. First one's called uh, Fear the Boom and Bust, and the second is called Fight of the Century. So if you Google, uh, if you Google Russ Roberts hip hop or Russ Roberts rap, you'll I think find either one of them. But the, the titles of them are Fight of the Century and Fear the Boom and Bust. And um, they were incredibly fun to do. John and I wrote the lyrics together. John, even though he's not an economist, knows a huge amount of economics. And even though I'm not a filmmaker, I had a few suggestions for how to film it. And uh, it was a great collaboration. And it's been, uh, you know, they've both been, they've been seen in total about over 10 million times on YouTube. And uh, people use them in the classroom. And they learn about these two different perspectives on macroeconomics, which are on paper really boring but in hip-hop they're pretty fun <laughs> are you a fan of hip-hop music yourself russ not particularly no i just thought yeah, in fact it was really my uh, i'm 63 years old i'm into uh, a lot of types of music but i can't say i'm a hip-hop fan but because of the i challenge we gave ourselves the challenge uh of, of writing it in that format and uh I got to like it some. It's not still not my favorite, but I, I, I mentioned it a little bit. Yeah, it was, it was, it was great. Was there anything? Uh, about, but I'm, but, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, was there anything about the uh, about the craft itself in collaborating and, and, and ultimately composing a work of hip-hop that gave you a little bit more insight, maybe even appreciation to the form itself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, we listened to a lot of... of uh, of the competition, I wanted to figure out what, what worked and what was what was effective and what, what caught our attention and what made us, you know, dance. So, um, definitely got more into it and more interested in it. And, uh, yeah, I, I wish I could sing in it. Uh, you know, I like to sing, but it's not a good rapper, it turns out. So, we, we did hire people to do the rapping, but they're phenomenal. Um, it was really, really a blast. And, they, yeah, it's very, to make a, a video... To write a song together is a lot of work. To write a video, create a video around it, it's even more work. So they were big projects. They took up a huge amount of my time, but um, it's definitely the most fun thing I've ever done, and I'm, and I'm certainly proud of them. They were a blast, and people learned something from So what more can you ask for? Well, uh, I'd like to thank my guest, uh, fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, Institution, Russ Roberts. He's also the host of Econ Talk. You can catch it on econtalk.org. He's had this podcast since I believe 2006. It's been a while. That's correct. And it's yep. yeah, and it's I've been a big fan. I recommend all my listeners to really go in with an open mind, especially if you'd like to hear the other side patiently, uh, you know, debate, provide counterfactuals. Um, I know personally, uh, I enjoyed when Russ brings on guests that are opposite his political inclination or guests who are really, really able to basically challenge the host and 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 it it was very informative very instructive and i can't gush about it enough uh russ thank you so much for joining us i can't wait to edit this and i'd like to uh thank you for delving into your monologue talking with me and even talking about that rap video because quite frankly i think that's the most direct thing that we'd like to uh touch on on this podcast is the fact that 
our guest helped write a rap video. Two of them. Regarding two economists, classic economists, and you should check it out. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you so much, and have a great day. Hope to talk to you soon. Take care. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GS Hamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon.